At this point, I'd like to explain to you the significance of taking refuge, refuge and precepts. I'll start with the precepts. I explained them already last night. There are five actions which we try to refrain from. The word taking precepts means that we are publicly announcing that we're trying to live according to them. Publicly meaning here in front of everybody. It's a stronger commitment than if we're just telling ourselves at home in our own four walls that we are not going to gossip or whatever it is that we'd like to change within ourselves. It's a much stronger thing when we do it in front of our companions on the spiritual path and in front of the Buddha, who of course isn't with us in person, but we're using the Buddha image as a manifestation of the enlightenment principle which the Buddha manifests and embodied. These five precepts which we commit ourselves to observe are training. They are not as thou shalt not and they are not (coughs) a guilt situation when we break them. They are a training in steadfastness, self-discipline, solidity of character, and selflessness. The more selfless we become, the easier life is. I always like to compare selfishness with being extremely fat. If a person is extremely fat and wants to go through a doorway, they might hit both sides of the door because their body is so fat, can't get through. So they have discomfort and um, possibly even pain from having to squeeze through an opening which isn't quite big enough for their bulk. If the ego is very fat, it gets painful sensations when touched by the slightest bit of somebody else's reaction. The fatter the ego, the more often we're hurt. If the ego is very slim and very uh, thin, it can squeeze through any opening. It doesn't matter what people say and think and do. It doesn't feel knocked about. But if there's a lot of it, it gets knocked about a lot. So it isn't the world that's doing it. 
the more we practice selflessness, the slimmer our ego gets and the less hurt we are. Doesn't mean we don't know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, wholesome and unwholesome. It just means it doesn't have any detrimental effect upon us. It's just happening. The five precepts help us in our selflessness. We don't kill, don't take anything that doesn't belong to us, are trustworthy and steadfast and faithful, don't use speech to the detriment of others, and watch ourselves from being intoxicated. We are selfless in a way that we don't become harmful. We don't harm anyone. We don't do any of these things in our self-interest. Our hate and greed is diminished. It's not completely demolished, but it's at least diminished. And therefore, to keep those five is a great help on the spiritual path and at least to train oneself in it so that one knows where one is going. It's very important to have a direction in life. There is no better direction than spiritual emancipation which requires moral purification. Without it, it doesn't exist. If we break any of the precepts, and are aware that we just have done so, as I mentioned the other evening, one takes it again by oneself to oneself. If there happens to be monk or nun around, one wants to do it in a formal manner, that's fine. But one can do it quite informally. In fact, in Buddhist countries, people take these precepts at every opportunity. They take them sometimes twice, three times a week, and some people take them every morning. It's like a New Year's resolution, which we have to take again on the 2nd of January. It doesn't last, does it? I'll never smoke again till day after tomorrow. It's the same with this. We have to do it again. We are short of memory and short of willpower. That's the way human beings are. Nothing wrong with it except that we could change it. So we have to remind ourselves. And that's a very good thing to do, to remind ourselves. Taking refuge means taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The Buddha, not as a person, as the great teacher who left the legacy of the Dhamma and did embody the enlightenment principle. So, in effect, we are taking refuge in the enlightenment principle, which is available to all of us. We've got the seed within. And if that sounds as 
too big an undertaking. It certainly will have the connotation of letting go of all problems and difficulties. And that kind of direction in life, not with indulgence, but through wisdom, should be appealing to practically everyone. The refuge, taking of refuge, means that we first of all recognize the fact that this enlightenment principle exists and exists within us and that we are aware of the fact that it's protective. To take refuge means to find protection. It's impossible to find protection in the world. I always say that the biggest buildings in any of the major cities are the insurance companies. People are trying to find protection in an insurance company. How? By getting some money paid out when they're dead. Wonderful idea. <laughs> <laughs> there is no protection in the world which can give us proper safety. The Enlightenment principle can. It's the only safety there is. Whether we have already tasted it or not, doesn't matter. We know that we want safety and refuge, and we know already that it isn't to be found in material, corporal, worldly things, people, ideas. So we are turning our direction away from that materiality and are turning it towards spirituality and by turning it towards that we are finding a place where we can in, inside of ourselves where we can be at ease because we have found that which will eventually show us absolute truth whether we have now seen it or not doesn't matter. It's the refuge that we take in it which will help us to get there. We take refuge in the Dhamma. The Dhamma is a teaching. And that, of course, is the vehicle that takes us to the Enlightenment Principle. The vehicle is extremely important. This one doesn't need any third-party insurance. This is the kind of vehicle that just needs our commitment to it. We don't have to worry about its remaining intact, not having anybody dent it or break it. We don't have to worry about it to that it keeps on running, the only thing we have to worry about is to use it. The more we use it, the more effective it becomes. It's not like the things in the world that the more you use them, the more they get used up. 
It's just the opposite. The more we use this one, the more embracing, wider reaching, and effective it will be. The Dhamma, as you have heard it, or as you have already learned it in the past, the teaching which does not go along with ordinary society and instincts and impulses, but constantly points the direction towards the giving up of hate and greed and the complete peacefulness that can be attained within. It's always going in that one direction. Now that is a refuge which is incomparable in the world. There is no such thing anywhere to be found that gives that kind of safety that reduces hate and greed. Only if we use it, of course. So we take that as our second aspect of finding the fundamental basic solid being within where we know where we're going where we know what we want to do these are commitments which we make in the mind third one is the sangha the sangha has many meanings usually it is people in robes monks and nuns in this case it's not in this case these the sangha are the people who have attained enlightenment according to the Buddha's principles and propagated the Dhamma for us to know about, whether they wore robes or not. Commonly, Sangha is also used in the West as everyone who practices. That's a Western addition to the word. Here we are taking refuge in the fact that there are people always have been there are such people now and there will be those that have used the vehicle to reach the enlightenment principle and have by that fact been able to keep the light of the Dhamma shining so that we ourselves have benefit from it today these are the three refuges that we take. We take each we take each one three times. And that's also an interesting aspect. That's a traditional orthodox way of doing it, to do things three times. It's an Indian habit that if you ask the teacher three times he must answer because it means that you're sincere <coughs> now even in the Buddha's time people would ask all sorts of outlandish questions which had nothing to do with enlightenment principle with what the Buddha had talked about nothing at all they were just questions that came out of their own skeptical doubt or in order to trip the Buddha up. 
he had four ways of answering questions. The first way was to say yes or no. The second way was to elaborate and give a discourse on it, an explanation, analysis. The third way was with a counter-question. And the fourth way, by keeping silent. Of course, he knew when it, which one was appropriate. However, if the questioner would ask the same thing three times, he was obliged to say something, because it meant, even though the question might have been totally um, wrongly put, still there was sincerity behind it. Also, when we say the same thing three times, we hopefully, on the third go, mean it. It's very often that we use traditional words in a parrot fashion. We just repeat them. Three times makes it more meaningful. Another thing that belongs to taking refuge and precept is the respect and reverence to the shrine. We have on the shrine the Buddha image, which I've already explained. Whether the Buddha looked like that or not, nobody knows. There were no cameras in those days, and there were no drawings. The Buddha did not want his person to be an object of reverence. He wanted the Dhamma to be the object of reverence because he said, when you see me, you will see in me the Dhamma. In other words, don't go for the person. Go for that which I represent and which I embody. The enlightened person becomes the Dhamma. So there was no likeness of the Buddha made ever until 300 years, a little more, after his death. So every artist is left to his own devices and naturally uses the cultural and social aspects of his own country to depict the Buddha. When I was in England and went to a Buddhist center, for the first time I saw the Buddha depicted as an Englishman. <laughs> At the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. Very nice too. Beautifully made. Very beautiful. So what we see is the artist's impression of what a Buddha could look like. And we do not pay reverence to this statue, but to the principle that it shows us. Some people actually find in a good and a well-made statue a manifestation, an emanation of peacefulness, sitting in meditation peacefully, with a, sometimes a beautiful face. 
and some people are affected in a very good way by that, particularly those who have faith. We always have candles which are the symbolism for the light in the mind. Enlightenment is light in the mind. The light which takes out all darkness, which takes out all impurity, which shows up the way things really are. This is a very common phrase. In Pali it's Jata Bhutanyana Dasana, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. It's an advanced step on insight towards total liberation. And the light is a symbol for that. Flowers. Our old friend, impermanence. They come very beautiful and they go in the dustbin as soon as we walk out the door. Same like us. We're very beautiful, but not very long. And we get uglier and uglier and then into the dustbin with us. <laughs> Same like the flowers. Now, unfortunately, our third bit is missing and it's strictly my fault. I start coughing when incense is lit and so we didn't bring any, which we should have because we should have it for taking refuge in precept, but never mind, I'll explain it anyway. The incense, which is usually on the shrine, and I apologize for the omission, is a symbol for the beautiful scent, the beautiful aroma that a totally purified person emanates they're surrounded by this beautiful aroma of purity just like the incense has a beautiful aroma which goes far and wide we usually light three sticks of incense one for Buddha, one for Dhamma, one for Sangha this is a traditional minimum aspects of a shrine there are other um, embellishments which are used if one has them but these are the three minimum. Unfortunately, we've got down to just the candle and the flower. The, um, Bud the large Buddha image sits on a lotus flower. This is a very common, the little one does too, but you can't see it, it's too small. Um, but you can see the large one. This is a very common orthodox way traditional way of depicting a Buddha image. The lotus flower has a very particular meaning in the Buddhist terminology. The lotus flower is uh, a relative of the water lily, but it's not exactly the same thing. And you can see them in the botanical gardens. Their difference is that a lotus flower, the leaves, grow out of the water. They don't stay right on top and the flower goes quite a bit out. And you can tell a lotus flower from a water lily 
that when you put water on the leaf of the, water, of the lotus flower, it runs right off like pearls. It never wets the leaf. That's the only way you can tell usually because they are very similar. And the symbolism of that is purity arising out of impurity. The lotus flower has to grow in the mud, just like we've got mud inside. And as it grows, it eventually comes out of the mud and out of the water and stands above it. And as it stands above it, even when it's touched by the water, it can no longer be in any way changed by it. It runs right off. Total purity. That's why we use the lotus flower in picture, in word, and most Buddha images that are sitting in meditation, and both of these are meditation postures, um, are shown on top of a lotus flower which has opened the petals because that means purity. Lotus flower is a symbol for purity. The uh, larger image is probably a Tibetan one, I'm not quite sure, but they do vary with the countries from where they come. and. It doesn't mean that there is a dispute about it. Depends who has made them. The way we are going to do this, taking refuge in precepts, for those of you who want to do that, is each person comes forward separately, bows down to the Buddha, and puts the um, flowers or the little uh, twig on the shrine as a gift to the Buddha and as one's own personal understanding of impermanence. The bowing down is done three times and it has several meanings. The first one is that we have found an ideal which is greater than we are ourselves we've finally found something that we can bow down to. That's probably the most important thing. It also means the commitment. I'm committing myself to training, to practice. It means reverence and respect for the greatness of the teacher and the greatness of the teaching. And with that can arise devotion. If that does arise, it means love. And if one doesn't love one's own spiritual path, one might as well forget about it. It won't work. We have to have love and understanding, both. We've got to know and understand what we hear or read. If we don't understand it, how are we going to practice it? And if we understand it, but not love it, we won't continue. If we love it and don't understand it, we won't start in the first place. So we have to have both aspects of ourselves involved. It's a, like a relationship 
a relationship like any other if we don't love the person but only understand them that's not a very good relationship and if we don't understand them but love them well that's not going to be long lasting either the love which we can generate in our heart for a spiritual path comes from the fact that we see that it is something beyond our everyday affairs beyond our everyday ideas it's beyond that which is material and beyond the dichotomy of our judgments of good and bad mine and yours yesterday and tomorrow having and becoming it goes beyond all that into a realm of absolute truth which is the same for everyone the approach is different and where we can finally say being nobody going nowhere nothing to do anymore until we get to that point we travel along a well-trodden path which has been trodden for two and a half thousand years by millions billions of people how far we get doesn't matter it's the path that matters so the love that we generate in our heart helps us greatly to continue on this path because why should we travel on a journey that we don't even like how much easier to travel a journey that we love and that we understand so our bowing down depicts all that and we call it the five-point prostration because we put five points of ourselves on the floor the five points are the forehead the two hands and the two elbows elbows they go on the floor which is a just an orthodox way of doing that if one doesn't do it that way it doesn't matter don't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> we also sometimes i always do it after having bowed down three times put the hands like this to forehead mouth and heart which is thought speech and action our three doors so committing the three doors to the principle of goodness of transcendental consciousness and enlightenment whether we actually have tasted it or not all these are our support systems so we can do that in order to have the feeling of having found something that will help us under all circumstances if we use it right one word that the buddha said 
may be in order here. He said, the Dhamma, the teaching, is like a snake. If you touch it by the tail, it will undoubtedly bite you. You've got to get hold of it behind the head. You've got to use it properly. And using it properly often means you've got to ask questions because it isn't the same as worldly life. So we need companionship on the path and that at the moment we have that here. Before we go any further, does anybody like to ask any question? Yes. I wanted to be on the path and you're talking about faith and emancipation. Is there any need for one to have finally sort of clean the slate of uh, previous misbelievers and unwholesome thoughts and actions? How do you make, can you do that? How can you get a clean slate? How do you come to terms with that? I was just going to say, you know, I'd love that if it was possible, but where do you get it? <laughs> How do you come to terms with that? All right. It's like a New Year's resolution. You start the new year. It just started, so we're not very late. You just start it and say, okay, from now on, five precepts and love and compassion to the best of my ability, watching my mind, getting rid of unwholesomeness, whatever your resolutions are, living according to Dhamma. The past is past and never to be resurrected. The only usefulness the past has is if you can see a particular situation and now see that you could have handled it differently and then make up your mind when that same situation arises again, which it undoubtedly will, although with different players in it, you will handle it differently. All the exams that we haven't passed, we've got to take again. It hasn't changed the slightest bit, slightest bit from school days. Whenever we flunk, we've got to go through it again. So the only usefulness of the past is as a learning situation. If we can see anything that we have done, which we could now, in hindsight, do better, then remember that when it happens again. Sometimes we have to take the same exam four or five times before it dawns on us. It's okay. That's human nature. But to regret the past, blame oneself, or worry about it, is only double dukkha. Putting more negativity on top of it. So one starts right now where we're at. Okay, what else? Um, the first precept not to kill, kill is um, that implies that we don't eat any flesh. No, eating and killing is not the same thing. It's up to you to decide that, what you want to do. Every person has to decide that for themselves. But killing is the act of killing. Indirectly it's a direct act of killing. We don't go into indirect acts. It's a direct act of lying. It's a direct act of 
uh, unfaithfulness, it's a direct act of stealing, it's a direct act of getting drunk, it's not indirect, it's not because somebody else is getting drunk, it's you are getting drunk or not getting drunk, it's a direct act of killing. The uh, indirectness comes into play when we talk about right livelihood, which is one of the factors on the Noble Eightfold Path, but not one of the precepts. So right livelihood would not be um, to be a person in the abattoir. It's not right livelihood, but that is not in question here. But whether one wants to be a vegetarian or not is one's own personal responsibility. It's not in that aspect of the precept. Okay? Um, a glass of wine with dinner. <laughs> the last one what? At dinner. A glass of wine with dinner. A glass of wine with dinner, yes. <laughs> well, I always like to compare that with being a little bit pregnant. <laughs> You know, I have a center in Germany, in Bavaria. Bavaria, even kids three years old drink beer. Uh, <laughs> beer is drunk in Bavaria like water. All the good beer comes from Bavaria. Everybody drinks beer. Well, those students of mine who are taking it seriously are all drinking non-alcoholic beer, which is available. Um, they've all come to that every one of them, in order to keep the precept. Apparently it tastes, I can't stand it and stuff, but apparently it tastes like beer to them. It has a similar taste, but it doesn't have any alcohol in it. So they've made it taste like that, you know. This could be pedantic caffeine, also a drug. No, this is called intoxicating substances. You, you can do drunk driving, but coffee in driving is not known yet. <laughs> You know, I've answered all that so many times, that's why it comes out so pat. <laughs> so is it, if the mind stays old, that's the drugs. It doesn't mean medicinal drugs. It, it, it just means the drugs that there's, yes, mind, uh, hallucinatory drugs that stay, alter states of mind, yes. Yes? That's right. Yeah. Anything else? Can you explain uh, Yes, <laughs> I can. Um, the uh, Leah is asking about the picture here uh, that is standing against the wall, and. Um, I personally have adopted that into the Theravadan tradition because in this tradition of ours we don't have any female principle and I think that's a great lack particularly since I happen to be female and um, Kuan Yin is a female principle used in the Chinese tradition the Chinese use Kuan Yin sometimes to the exclusion of the Buddha I've been in quite a number of Chinese temples, particularly very beautiful one in Kuala Lumpur, which is totally dedicated to Kuan Yin. She appears there um, oh, 12 foot high, and um, 
a very beautiful temple. Kuan Yin is the symbolism for the compassion of the Buddha. Now, in Chinese tradition, she's very often considered to have been a real person, a bodhisattva, and many stories are told about her that she rescues people who are in the danger of drowning, people at sea, and many stories like that are told even to this day that she's doing that. Um, whether they're so or not, I have no way of knowing. But for us, she means the compassionate principle, which was totally perfected, of course, in an enlightened one, and is actually, as we say now, the female side of our psyche. It doesn't mean that that can only exist in a female, but it's the female side of our psyche, whereas logic and um, um, consideration and lineal thinking is more the male side of our psyche. So Kuan Yin is usually depicted as a mature woman and very we have some beautiful statues, marble statues that um, that are about two, three hundred years old, have come from China, where the beauty of the statue can give a person a feeling of great um, reverence and uh, a feeling of wanting to be one with such a principle. So I use a, a quite uh, um, outside of the tradition that I mean, and um, feel that she adds something to the um, shrine. The salvation can come through the help of the Buddha uh, instantaneously? Which means it undercuts the whole Buddhist uh, uh, idea of the spiritual path. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. we are all trying to get enlightened through the help of the Buddha because he gave us the Dhamma. But uh, the grace principle does not exist, not even in Mahayana Buddhism. No. You've got to do it yourself. (coughs) And if you discuss this with Christian practitioners, by which I mean um, more cloistered nuns with whom I've had many discussions, um, Dominican and uh, Carmelite and also monks who are very, uh, Christian monks who are uh, really practicing the grace principle does not mean that somebody's going to do it for you that's a misunderstanding the grace principle means that you are opening your heart to the to the what they call the Godhead which then fills you with the ability to take in something beyond the everyday and um, ordinary understanding and in the mystic tradition of Christianity 
which unfortunately has got lost since the Middle Ages, maybe one, maybe it's going to be revived now. The pathway is no different from ours, except that the terminology is different. But those are just words. The path is the same in the mystical tradition. Unfortunately, very few people even know what that mystical tradition in Christianity is all about. And it's not being practiced very much. But even today, the, the principle of grace, I've often discussed that because I also thought, well, do they really think somebody else is going to do it? But they don't. Yes? So I don't think I can hear you too well. Come again. Well, I would more put that under the principle of karma, which in Christianity is called, as you sow, you will reap. Whatever you get, you've it is a result of, an, uh, of a cause and the cause lies within you so it's as you sow you will reap and grace is a spiritual it belongs to sp spiritual mysticism uh, and does not have the connotation of I'm going to get something for no reason whatsoever it would be too facile I wouldn't I wouldn't really enter into a spiritual discipline atasa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa namo atasa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa namo atasa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranangachami I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang Saranangachami I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sanghang Saranangachami I take refuge in the Sangha. Duteyampi Buddhang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Duteyampi Dhammang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Duteyampi Sanghang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the 
Bhati For the third time I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time I take refuge in the Dhamma. Tatiampi Sanghang Sarananga Chaming. For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. Sarana Gampanang Sammanang. Anati Patave Ramanisika. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame so michacharave ramani sika pedam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavara veramani sika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech. Sura Maryamma Japamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drugs and drink. Hisaranena sadhim pancha silang dhammang sadukang surakitang katva pamadena sampadeta. That means, may the taking of refuge and precept bring you happiness and peace and help you on your spiritual path. For those of you who may not be familiar with uh, the Buddha's uh, teaching so much, the language that I was chanting in is called Pali, and it is unique in so far that it only exists in the Buddha's teaching. There is no other record or reference to Pali except in the Pali canon which contain the teachings of the Buddha. It is a common derivative 
of Sanskrit. The words are often identical, except that the V in Sanskrit gets changed into B in Pali, and the R also often gets changed into B, or into a double consonant. So Sanskrit, it's called Dharma, in Pali, Dhamma. In Sanskrit, it's Nirvana, in Pali, Nibbana. In Sanskrit, it's Karma, in Pali, Kamma. It is supposedly the language of the common people at the time of the Buddha, and the uh, scholars say that it wasn't called Pali, it was called Magadha, which was the area where the Buddha lived, but today we call it Pali, has been called that for a long time. And the Buddha's teachings are to be found in the <coughs> Pali canon. And the Pali canon has been translated into English for over a hundred years. So we are in the fortunate position to be able to read the Buddha's words if we are so inclined. One of the books here on the table, the Diganikaya, called in English, it actually means the long discourses or the long collection. Digga means long and Nikaya means collection. It is entitled, Thus Have I Heard, is one of the five major collections of discourses translated newly into English in a very excellent style. The person who translated it uh, was until his retirement a professor of English in England and also a professor of Pali and Sanskrit one of the best translators we have today so that is the as far as I remember the only one of the books that actually contains the Buddha's words the other books are about the Buddha's words if one is very keen on knowing what the Buddha said one should read his words. If one would rather have a bit of an explanation about it first, one should read about them. I just want to say a few words now about your future, because the present has sort of run out, hasn't it? <laughs> if you want to continue meditating, and if you want to continue to have contact with the Dhamma, you need group support. Most of you will have noticed that it is easier to meditate in a group because of the group energy. And the Dhamma, which goes so against everything that we're used to, needs a bit of an effort to learn, to make one's own. Again, one is helped by the group energy. However, if one really means it seriously, one needs to meditate every day. Everybody has time to eat three meals a day. Everybody has time to go to bed and sleep. Everybody has time to take a shower and wash their clothes. 
that's all very well looking after the body but I'm sure you have noticed in the past three days that we also consist primarily of mind that when the body aches it's a mind that's reacting so we have to do the same thing for the mind give it some care so if we have time for all those things for the body and are spending maybe eight hours a day trying to make money so that we can get the body comfortable and looked after we will find time if we want to to sit down and meditate ideally one hour in the morning one hour at night however those of you who may not be very practiced in meditation yet and are beginners so to say maybe you should start with 30 minutes and then work up maybe for two weeks 30 minutes or maybe even for a month and then the following month 35 and then 40 and then 45 until you get it up to an hour it's much better to slowly work up instead of slowly working down <laughs> but don't start under 30 minutes because the mind needs time to settle down it's all agitated from all its thinking agitated from all the sense contacts about which it has to think so give it at least 30 minutes and then work up those of you who have no trouble sitting for an hour sit for an hour if you have a demanding job during the day and then come home and feel quite exhausted if you want to meditate in the evening rest have a shower have your meal and wait two hours and then meditate it's useless to come into meditation with all the things of the day still in the mind the mind just won't settle down if your day has a pattern which most people's days have put in this extra little pattern you might have to be your own mother and child the mother saying come on go and sit down and meditate and the child saying I'll do it tomorrow or saying not every day surely once a week will do won't it and the mother keeps saying no no come on sit down do it when we were small our mother used to tell us that we have to clean our teeth morning and evening and most of us would have said I've already done it or I'll do it later or what for that mother used to insist and undoubtedly we're still cleaning our teeth we have established a habit that's what we'll have to do with meditation establishing a habit naturally if you come to the point where meditation is a joy and what you're looking forward to then your habit has been well enough established not to worry about it anymore at this point talk to yourself like a wise and loving mother 
a time element you have to sort out for yourself when you do it but have a little timer or an alarm clock it's essential I always recommend that because if you don't you might sit there meditating 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 thinking 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 and after some time of that you become convinced that it's been at least an hour or more and when you get up and look to see what it was probably 10 minutes but since you're already up it's unlikely you're going to sit down again but if you have a little timer that you can set for the appropriate amount of time that you want to sit 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes whatever it may be you know when it hasn't rung yet it isn't time yet it's like you knew when the bell didn't go yet it wasn't time yet it's perseverance self-discipline and patience these are character qualities without which life cannot be lived satisfactorily we might as well establish them in meditation if the meditation is not concentrated don't start becoming despondent frustrated angry or totally negative about it the actual fact of sitting down having the intention of meditating makes good karma that's the first step the actual naming labeling of a thought makes it possible to know your habitual thought pattern and makes it much easier to know in daily living the same you can label in daily living and you think ah yes unwholesome what am I going to do with it change it of course if you have been doing that in meditation it should become a very natural thing to do in daily living you have immediate benefits the self-discipline is a benefit the patience which you have to generate towards yourself if you have any kind of concentration even just one moment of it it's a moment of purification so if you do that daily you're looking after your mind there is no other way to look after your mind the mind is our greatest jewel if we don't look after that looking after the body is pretty useless that's going to break up anyway and it's our mind that reacts to that breaking up business it's the main thing we have to look after we can look at mind and body as if they were a master and a servant we keep on looking after this servant very well feed it and clothe it and clean it and rest it and do everything for the servant and the master is completely forgotten you may not have had servants in your house but you can imagine what it's like if you have servants in your house that you're looking after and the master is forgotten who's going to pay the bills the house the household becomes chaotic <coughs> certainly the servants should be looked after but the master has to have at least equally good treatment 
a shade better wouldn't hurt. Group energy and group support. If you haven't got a particular group within your near neighborhood, the Buddhist Society at 226 Mary Street in Richmond has group meditation every Monday evening and every Sunday morning. Monday evenings at 8, correct? And Sunday mornings at 8.15. On Sunday morning after the 8.15 sit, there's a group discussion, which is usually very interesting. On Thursday nights, people go there and listen to a Dhamma talk on a tape if there's no teacher there. There you have at least the group support. If you live too far away to get to Richmond and you don't know anyone in your particular area that is having a group, you start one. Two are a group. And you'll find most likely, I'm sure that it's actually very certain more people than you thought that would be interested to come. Once a week, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, have a meditation, then have a cup of tea together, and maybe discuss something that you have read or thought about during the week which has helped you in more understanding, in the growth of the Dhamma. Anyone can do that. You don't have to have a leader or a teacher. You do it together. That's what they do on Sunday mornings at the uh, Buddhist Society. I personally hope to be back here next January in Melbourne, teaching at the Buddhist Summer School again, which will take place from 12 to 17 January next year at the university again, just like it did this year. And after that, I'll be at the um, Buddhist Society in Mary Street. Maybe not in Mary Street. <laughs> Maybe somewhere bigger and, bigger and better. And hopefully we have a Australia Day weekend retreat again at the end of January. If you intend to come, practice meanwhile so that you can tell me wonderful stories, how marvelous the meditation has been, and that at the bottom of your sheet, it's going to say daily, twice, once a week with a group, never failing, <laughs> rather than what it said this time. It's very easy to fall by the wayside. It's much easier to let go than to continue. The easy things usually don't bring the benefits. It's the harder things that bring us the great results. Another thing that I could mention now is if you would like copies of the tapes that I took here from the talks that I gave you can see Stephen put your hand up Stephen 
you're going to put the list on the table. Okay, Stephen is putting a list on the table where you can put down your name and address. Each tape is going to cost $5, including postage, and I suggest that you leave the money right then there with the list so that Stephen can buy the tapes and post them to you. So you put your name and address down. If you only want one of the tapes or two, and there are six altogether, if you don't want all of them, you will have to decide which ones. You probably don't remember what they were. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of yourself as a meditator, as a person on the spiritual path. Content with making such an effort. Appreciating the discipline you have imposed upon yourself. Realizing the strength that you have. Fill yourself with appreciation of those qualities and surround yourself with love. Direct your attention to the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Realize that he or she is on a spiritual path. Appreciate that person's effort and discipline. Fill him or her with this appreciation. Surround him or her with your love. Now think of all the people who are assembled here as being on a spiritual path, exerting effort in self-discipline. Fill them with your appreciation. And with your gratitude that they are supporting you in this effort. 
and surround them with your love. Think of your parents. Think of all the efforts they have made in this life. Fill them with your appreciation and gratitude. Surround them with your love. Think of your near and dear ones. Remember all the efforts that they're making. Fill them with your appreciation and with your gratitude that they are part of your life. Embrace them with love. Think of all your good friends. Remember the effort they're making in their lives. Fill them with your appreciation and your gratitude that they are your friends and embrace them with your love. Think of your neighbors, the people at work, people you meet in the shops, offices. Think of the efforts they have to make 
to lead a good human life. Fill them with appreciation and give them your gratitude that they are part of your life, making it richer, more expansive through their presence. Surround them with love. Let appreciation and gratitude reach out to people near and far, those that live around this area, knowing that everyone has to make effort to lead a decent human life. Be grateful for their presence, enriching your life, part of your existence here now. Let it go further and further, your heart that opens to people everywhere with appreciation and gratitude and love. Filling the hearts of people in the city, in the state, in the country, as far as it will reach. and put your attention back on yourself. Feel gratitude welling up in you for the ability and opportunity of practicing the spiritual path, which takes the mind to a growth consciousness which will bring peace. Let this gratitude well up in you, the appreciation for your own effort. And hug yourself with love.
we share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, our parents, our loved ones, our friends and our enemies. We share the merits with those who have helped to organize it, with the cooks who've kept us alive. We share the merits with the devas who are present, and we share with each other and all those living beings who may have benefit from these merits. May beings everywhere have happiness and peace. I now officially end this meditation retreat. Noble silence is lifted and may you all be very happy. There are many ways of making good karma. Two ways are listening to Dhamma and teaching Dhamma. They're equally good. So I want to thank you very much for being here and giving me the opportunity to teach Dhamma and to make good karma. Thank you. <laughs>